in the world of AI news. I tried ChatGPT this past week after being encouraged by clickbait to go ahead and try it. As a pastor, it could be useful to you. And the reason why I wanted to try it was because as, I'm, as my release date is Wednesday from the prison, I am having an increasing number of incarcerated Christians who are begging me to get access to the podcasts. So I, they keep saying, you've got to get in contact with Real Vita. So I couldn't find it on Google, so I thought, I'm going to try ChatGPT, because this is supposed to be really good AI software that can do all kinds of wonderful things. So I typed in Real Vita the first time like this. This is how I spelled it. It seemed reasonable to me. And ChatGPT gave me a message that essentially said, at this time, we do not have any information on Real Vita. Uh, here are some clues. Basically told me to Google it. Okay. <laughs> so I, I spelled it differently. Here's the second way I spelled it. Seems reasonable. That's an option. It came up with the same message. You should Google it. Okay. So here are the other ways. Just click through them except for the last one. There you go. There's all the different ways. This, yeah, yeah. Keep one more then another one. All right, stop right there. Thank you. So there's all the, some, these aren't all of the ways. I tried every way I could, thought I could think of. Nothing worked. Kept telling me, they can't help me. I've been told that by others. I'm beyond help. But then I woke up the next morning, had my coffee, and I thought, wait a minute. I didn't try this. So I tried spelling it this way. Chat GPT still didn't know what it was, so I followed the advice and Googled it in that spelling, and I found it. There you go. Once again, showing that artificial intelligence, as great as they say it is, is not as good as human intelligence, and it's definitely inferior to God's word. So that's why we're not doing uh, fake intelligence. We're doing beyond artificial intelligence. When things don't make sense, God's word still does. And as we look at timeless wisdom from Proverbs and James, particularly Proverbs today, I know that the subject material that we've got to cover today is uncomfortable. And it's not going to be the first time we talk about uncomfortable material. And it won't be the last time we talk about this particular uncomfortable subject matter. And because it's uncomfortable, and since we're talking about artificial intelligence, it reminded me of something, and I thought I should lighten the moment. But first, I'll tell you about Alexa. Uh, Y'all know about Alexa, Google Alexa? How many of you have it? Raise your hands high. Some of you do. So my, I don't. My daughter has it, and, and, and my son-in-law, they have it in their home, you know. Uh, Alexa, close the garage door. Alexa, turn the heat up to whatever. Uh, Alexa, turn the music down. Uh, Alexa, start the laundry. You know, it's got to be in there. It doesn't just put it in there for you. But all these different things that uh, Alexa will do, preheat the oven, you know, whatever you can theoretically get something electronic to do, Alexa can be connected to it in your home and do it, and even away from your home. Uh, we do have 
artificial intelligence uh, in our washer and dryer and some of our other, our other appliances, which is, I, I'm still learning, but it, they do all kinds of crazy things. But Alexa is something that some of you use, some of you've heard about it, you've been in people's homes where they use it, and it can be entertaining sometimes because just casual conversation, then Alexa does something. But I wanted to give you a little bit of, because we're dealing with difficult subject material, I wanted to lighten the moment and give you something that I thought was entertaining. So enjoy the video. But the latest technology isn't always easy to use for people of a certain age. That's why Amazon partnered with AARP to present the new Amazon Echo Silver, the only smart speaker device designed specifically to be used by the greatest generation. It's super loud and responds to any need, even remotely close to Alexa, so they can find out the weather. What is the weather outside? It is 74 degrees and sunny. Huh? It is 74 degrees and sunny. Where? Outside. What about it? The temperature outside is 74 degrees and sunny. I don't know about that. Some of our issues with uh, artificial intelligence is our age sometimes. We'll see. I want to have a re an important reminder based on previous weeks as we've gone through Proverbs so far. Wisdom is personified as a woman. Don't forget that. There's a reason. So our text, Proverbs chapter 5, God's warnings against sexual deviance, part one. And just to make it a little more palatable, we're going to go into chapter 6, verses 20 to the end of the chapter as well. I realize that's a lot of text, 
But I'm telling you, Solomon deals with this subject matter quite a bit. And to make it more palatable to us, I want to take it in bigger chunks. Proverbs chapter 5, verse 1, our text begins. My son, pay attention to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my discernment, that you may keep discretion and that your lips may guard knowledge. So right off the bat, Solomon is going to the father appeal. Now, he's not going to stay there, but he is going to use this. My son, pay attention to my wisdom. We know Rehoboam didn't pay attention to his wisdom, but he's compelling his son to pay attention. And as we read this, we should think about our father God is compelling us to pay attention because maybe we won't. Why would he inspire Solomon to repeatedly do this over and over again, over and over again? Son, pay attention to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my discernment that you may keep discretion and that your lips may guard knowledge. He is trying to move us to cling to the wisdom that we're given because our inclination is to not do that. Our inclination is to do our own thing. If you don't believe that, you can make the mistake I've made and click on clickbait on social media when it looks entertaining that somebody has an accident. You know, they're trying to do something and they have an accident. If you dare do that, guess what's going to keep popping up over and over again? People doing stupid things and then paying for it. And it's hard to unsee some of that stuff. But that's our inclination is doing stupid things instead of listening to wisdom. Verse 3 continues, For the lips of a strange woman drip honey, and smoother than oil is her speech, but her end is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps take hold of Sheol, lest she watch the path of life. Her tracks are unstable. She does not know it. Now, I want to go ahead and bring up this Hebrew word here. There's a bunch in the particular text that we're looking at today that we would need to normally go through, but it does it in the translation. In the word there, you see speech. It's literally translated in the Hebrew, or if we literally translate from the Hebrew, it means palate. But for our purposes, speech is good. The reason why I am, I don't know if you've noticed, but at the beginning, I had a copyright that I'm supposed to put up there so you can see it. This morning, I'm not using the English Standard Version. I normally do. I like it a lot because it's accurate and readable. But there is a newer translation out there called Legacy. I think it's Legacy Standard Bible. It's from the Lockman Foundation and some others work together on it. And it's fascinating to me because I know the people, I know of the people who have worked on this. I, I know that uh, several of them are very much diehard denominationalist people that would prefer to translate it a way that supports their denominational belief. But instead, they actually, I looked up key verses and they actually translated very well. So I'm, I'm a believer in this new translation. And I wanted to use it this morning because it, did, it does a really good job with the Hebrew words in translating in this text. So at the beginning, 
for the lips of a strange woman drip honey. Now that's, it's a fascinating thing when you go through and just, when you pick it apart, Hebrew word by Hebrew word. So the strange woman, actually, if you were to literally translate that, it would be a foreign woman or alien woman. And the purpose of this, is, as he's saying, as a father to a son, I'm going to talk to you about women. And he particularly isolates a woman that is unique to you, son. Now, of course, in dealing with the, their particular situation, I don't know if you've looked at the maps, um, we're in the middle school uh, ministries classroom that Stephanie's worked on so much, we're, we're going to have some uh, cool things down there soon, and one of them is going to be uh, some, some kind of interactive poster things, and we can figure it out where it'll show uh, current things so you can look at it. And one of those current things that we want to have on the wall right now is maps of, of uh, ancient Middle East and modern Middle East. And if you want to look closely at those things today, you'll discover something that the region of the Palestinians and the region of the Philistines are the same. In fact, the words are the same. It's a it's kind of disturbing and fascinating at the same time. When you go back and look at history, you ask any men who came to our men's breakfast and they could give you a little bit of insight on that. This past uh, Saturday, we had a, um, two Saturdays ago, we had some a discussion about that. But in particular, when Israel went back to the land of Canaan, there were people worshiping false gods and it was a dangerous thing to interact with them in such a way that you married them and then you end up with conflict in your own home. So God was trying to be preventive of that. But this isn't what this is about at all. The whole idea of the foreign or alien woman isn't about, son, stay away from her. She has different beliefs. I mean, that is what did lead to Solomon's big struggles. He married women that had different beliefs. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about something altogether different. And it's worth discussing. He's talking about that there's something appealing about this woman that you don't know much about. It's the way it works in life, in modern times, in lives of men here in this country, just like back then, many years ago in a different country. Things could be going south at home. Something doesn't go well. Arguments happen. You start second-guessing, should I have married this person? But we've been married 20 years. What are you talking about? <laughs> that happens, you know. I remember talking to an elder in a church, very respected elder. I still respect him much today. We're talking about a family that had been married longer than that, I think. And this couple that was married, and they had kids, and they were divorcing. And I'm talking to this elder about it. I said, it's, it's, it's troubling to me because I, I, I would have put them on a list of people that would never divorce. And he looked at me with a serious expression on his face and said, it could happen to any of us. And immediately I'm thinking, not you, no, because they've been married so long and they've, they've figured it out. Marriage takes work. <clears throat> but when there's trouble at home and you're not getting along and you're second guessing things and maybe you even have some regrets, 
When that's happening at home, it's very easy for the devil, devil to jump in and tempt you with all these thoughts, and especially if it's a, a woman at work or a woman at school or a woman in the neighborhood or a passerby or one you see at the store or whatever, and you don't know much about her, she's foreign to you, and the grass looks greener, she's nice. And it says that her, the lips of her drip honey, particularly in contrast to the next thing it says, but even though the woman might not like to hear her own voice on a recording, a man, because the way God created things, is drawn to a woman, even the soft voice of a woman. When they just got in an argument at home and she wasn't so soft, now this strange one that's in front of you now suddenly becomes attractive. And smoother than oil is her speech. Mm. So what she's, not only does the sound of her voice, is it, is it appealing, and, and the words that she says appealing, the way she says it, seems to just be just right in your mind. But then verse 4, it says, but her end is bitter as wormwood. And if you look up wormwood, you can find a lot of things about it. It's mentioned several times, I believe, eight in the Old Testament and one in the New. In the New Testament, it's a reference to uh, eschatology and revelation. But in the Old Testament, every single time, it's about bitterness. In fact, if you look up wormwood, wormwood was con it's a, actually a real plant. There's four of them. And they're all considered, especially back then in their region, it was considered poison because it's so bitter. One of those things you learn in Boy Scouts early on is if it tastes bitter, don't eat it because it might be poison. Just a safety precaution your, your tongue gives you. But notice the contrast. So in their times, they see this wormwood as poison, bitter poison. But her words are appealing like honey, slick as oil, sharp as a two-edged sword. Oh, it'll hurt you. It's going to hurt you. Could kill you. Her feet go down to death. Her steps take hold of Sheol, a reference most scholars would say to hell. Lest she watch the path of life. So it could be that she's just a nice woman, but don't be tempted by her. Her tracks are unstable. She does not know it. Isn't that fascinating? She doesn't even know she's not stable. Hmm. Don't go there. She doesn't realize the danger she poses. Be guarded. It could kill you. Continues, verse 7, so now my sons, listen to me. Now he's talking to all of his sons. And do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her. And do not go near the door of her house. I was, uh, we'll read the rest of this in a minute. I was uh, feeling like I was left with a responsibility because... The father had um, 
had to go away for a while. And because the father had to go away for a while, I felt like I needed to look after things while he was gone. And so anytime there was a need, I made sure that my wife was aware, that his wife was aware, and that somebody else was there besides me if I had to go over there. And I found a man over there twice that didn't belong. And the man was a member of our church. So I had a talk with the man both times. You should never be over here by yourself. And the second time when I said, I've already told you this once, this means to me, you are up to no good. Stay out of their home. That man wound up divorcing his wife. He had five children at the time. And he chased a kid in the youth group until she was old enough to marry. There's all kinds of danger when you start thinking the grass is greener somewhere else. It hurts a lot of people. Do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your splendor to others and your years to the cruel one, lest strangers be satisfied by your strength and by your painful labor, those in the house of a foreigner. Verse 11, and you groan at your end when your flesh and your body are consumed. And you say, how have I hated discipline and my heart spurned reproof. I have not listened to the voice of my instructors and I have not inclined my ear to my teachers. I was almost in utter ruin in the midst of the assembly and congregation. And this is the story that unfolds all too often, that you hear from well-meaning Christian people who get lured away by sensuality. It continues, verse 15. Drink water from your own cistern and fresh water from your own well. If you don't know, this is allegory, it is. Should your springs be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for you alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and be glad in the wife of your youth. An emphasis of being faithful to your wife. Men. Verse 19, as a loving hind and a graceful doe, Let her breast satisfy you at all times. Be intoxicated always with her love. So why should you, my son, be intoxicated with a strange woman and embrace the bosom of a foreign woman? For the ways of a man are before the eyes of Yahweh, and he watches all his tracks. And you might, when the preacher stands on a stage on a Sunday morning, or you hear this in a podcast, why would he? Why would he just skip over something like this? Because that's awkward. That's uh, that's a that's an uncomfortable thing to even read. As a loving hind and a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times. Why wouldn't you just pass over that preacher? Why did you read that twice? You, you could have avoided that. That's uncomfortable. The reality is, there's more. There's way more. Have you not read Song of Songs? This this even more graphic. Why does 
God inspire this to be written in our Bibles? Because this book isn't just full of wonderful wisdom. It's full of practical, wonderful wisdom. Everything in here is so useful. Oh, it does say that too, doesn't it? And here it talks about the reality that God has designed humans in such a way that they're physically attracted to one another. And he's talking to his sons, and he's letting us know, he's reminding us men, one of the things that we're attracted to about women. Women, let me address something right now, because it's not addressed right here, and it should be. That is one of those things men are attracted to, and that should necessarily mean women should not be using that as an attraction tool to lure men away from their wives. It should not be something that is done without, women should not dress in such a way that there's no discretion. And if you don't know this already, women who dress in such a way to use their bodies to attract men, <laughs> men, you don't want that kind of woman. And if you ever wonder when a woman is exposing more than she should be exposing, if that's accidental, it's usually not, just so you know. So if you're a younger woman and you're tempted to do that sort of thing, understand that wise people know what you're doing. Don't do it. <clears throat> And if you're a woman and you think, and you got to understand back in the time, back, back in Solomon's day, there weren't a lot of options for women to have a stable home except to find a man. That was what most thought they had to do. Imagine being a woman in Solomon's time when the number of women exceeded the number of men. That's kind of the way it works except when you introduce uh, a subject that's uncomfortable to bring up. But people, people have actually had abortions because the gender wasn't right. And that changes the way God's designed things. It's unfortunate. But in Solomon's time, women didn't have a lot of options. So if you imagine being a woman who once a nice home and wants children and wants financial stability and her path that she thinks is her only way is to find a man. And then if she doesn't find a man, as she gets older and older, she struggles with her loneliness. And as you imagine this, just so you know, this happens in today's world now a lot. And so it would naturally be tempting for a woman to try hard to find a man. But women, if nobody's ever told you this, let, let me give you some fatherly wisdom right now. If you have to pretend to be something you're not to get a man, that, that man will resent that. And, and you will discover that's not the way to find a man. And if you have to sacrifice your own character to find a man, he's going to know you did that. And if you have to tempt him to sacrifice his character, 
so that you can hook him and get his attention. It will always be in your head that he doesn't have boundaries. You don't want to live with that. So why not just follow the wisdom of God and pray that he would guide you and that he would provide? How about that? After all, if you think about it, it's pretty clear God's always watching. That's what it says here. Verse 22, his own iniquities will capture him who is the wicked one. And with the cords of his sin, he will be held fast. He will die for lack of discipline. And in the abundance of his folly, he will stumble in intoxication. My son, observe the commandment of your father and do not abandon the law of your mother. I'm going to pause right there. I know it's the screen is, uh, no, it isn't. Uh, the screen will catch up in a minute. <clears throat> My son, observe the commandment of your father and do not abandon the law of your mother. Once again, God is so clever. Look at what he does. He's talking from a father to a son, but then even in the conversation, he brings up the mother. He's going to pull out all stops because it matters. When it comes down to it, it matters. What would your father think? What would your mother think? Use those tools if they help you stay on the right path. My son, observe the commandment of your father and do not abandon the law of your mother. This could be translated differently. It could be translated instruction of your mother, but it fits contextually it should be law of your mother, your mother's rules. Bind them continually on your heart. Tie them around your neck. When you walk about, they will lead you. When you sleep, they will keep watch over you. And when you awake, they will speak to you. We're supposed to be passionate about those things our parents teach us that are good. And if we are, they will protect us even when we're asleep. <clears throat> and by the way, I think I've already jumped into uh, chapter uh, 6. Let me make sure where I am. Yes, we did. Sorry, I didn't warn you. We're moving on in chapter 6, verse 23. For the commandment is a lamp and the law is light, and reproofs for discipline are the way of life to keep you from the evil woman from the smooth tongue of the foreign woman. Do not desire her beauty in your heart, nor let her capture you with her eyelids, for on account of a harlot, one is reduced to a loaf of bread. And an adulteress hunts for the precious life. Now, this is an interesting thing, and I, you know, most of the time you're dealing with church, you're preaching in a church, and uh, you Hopefully, you don't have men who are investing in prostitutes. But if you do, that's a very bad thing. It's one of those things like you, we talked about it previously. Using foul language, that's a bad thing. You shouldn't use foul language. Bible teaches, don't use it. Rid yourself of filthy language. We talked about this. And it, it's, it's one thing that a, a word might slip out. It's still not okay. You don't justify it. Don't defend it. 
but it's a completely at a completely different level for you to actually purposely type it out and put it out there. You have, to, you have to consciously know you're going to use the foul language. You're going to put it in the text. You're going to put it in the email. You're going to put it in a letter. You're going to put it in a message. You're going to put it on social media. Whatever it is you do, if you actually type it out, that takes it to a different level. It wasn't accidental. This was purposeful. And Christians, if you don't know this, let me help you out. If you are a Christian, hopefully you're leading a Christian life in other ways at work. Hopefully people know you're a Christian. But if you're one who does use foul language on a regular basis, or even if ever now and then you use foul language, those people around you that aren't Christians are saying things like, and she calls herself a Christian. She's supposed to be a Christian. He is a Christian. He goes to church and he talks like that. I'm telling you, it's, it's the nature of life. It's the way it is. Your example matters and you represent your brothers and sisters in Christ. So if you use foul language on a regular basis and people know you're a Christian, they think you're a hypocrite. And it's very hard to lead them to Christ when they want nothing to do with those hypocrites. Now, why did I bring that up? Because it doesn't talk about language in here. I bring it up because there's a difference. When you are tempted to, in some form of sexual sin, there's a difference that you're tempted, you know, you think about it. Jesus says, don't even think about it. Did you read the Sermon on the Mount? You're not even supposed to, don't, put, don't let your mind go there. But it's different when the thought enters your head and you push it out. There's a difference in that. And when you actually take the Lord's money, because your money is the money that the Lord blesses you with. If you have a job and you have income, you have investments and you have uh, income from those investments coming in, if you want to dare say to God, you didn't give me this, I did this. Just be forewarned, he might teach you a lesson. Any, any blessings you have are from God. Why in the, what about all these stories that have been taught in the Old and New Testament about people who don't use God's money wisely? You don't get to keep your blessings. Why would God give you more if you squander it? Why would he trust you with more when you can't be trusted with a little? Didn't Jesus teach that? So, it's a, there's a difference in someone who has a passing thought. It enters your head, and it shouldn't enter your head. It's a bad thought. It's a sexual thought that you shouldn't have thought about. There's a difference when that enters your head, and you push it out, say, Lord, I'm sorry, forgive me. Please remove that from my mind. I don't want to think like that. And then actually investing in your sexual sin. That's what this whole prostitution discussion is about right here. Maybe you're not engaged in paying money for some sexual satisfaction, and in your mind, well, it's not prostitution. I'm not involved in that. But if you're paying any money for any kind of sexual satisfaction, whatever that may be, well, you might say, well, I don't do that. But if you are investing your time that God gives you here on this earth and listening to, watching, looking at any type of pornography... There's a difference in that and a passing thought. 
You are purposely spending energy where no energy should be spent. It will lead you to spiritual death. Do, do you not see these words here? It's pretty strong language. <clears throat> for the commandment is a lamp and the law is light. And reproofs for discipline are the way of life to keep you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of a foreign woman. Don't desire her beauty in your heart, nor let her capture you with her eyelids. For on account of the harlot, one is reduced to a loaf of bread, and an adulteress hunts for the precious life. Verse 27. Can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes and not be burned? Or can a man walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is the one who goes into his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her will not go unpunished. I don't know if you've seen, but there are gurus that come out every now and then that think it's a grand thing to walk on hot coals and not burn their feet. If you do a simple internet search, you will find that there's one particular guru who's done this a bunch and has gotten in trouble because people did burn their feet. But it always baffles me that people would even jump in and try this. What's the point? And it, it baffles me more because there's a connection to Scripture, an analogy. You're going to get burned if you do something stupid. So he, he goes at this angle, men... Stay faithful to your wife. And then he goes at another angle, leave his wife alone. He's, he, he's, he's pulling out all stops. He's making sure he hits us at every angle. It's going to be tempting. It's going to seem appealing. Think about what your mother would think. Think about what your father would think. Verse 30. Men do not despise a thief if he steals to fill himself when he is hungry. But when he is found, he must repay sevenfold. He must give all the substance of his house. Now, I have avoided giving you all the different footnotes in the Legacy Standard Bible, but I need to give you the ones in this particular chunk. So at the beginning, it might be better translated, do not men... Or it could even be literally translated, they do not. So in other words, they do, men, they, that's the implication for men, do not despise a thief if he steals to fill himself when he's hungry. Because people, you know, people get sympathetic, you know, somebody's stealing because they don't have uh, and they need, it's still wrong, but people don't get that upset when they learn oh, they were desperate. It's most stealing, that's why it happens. The next uh, word, you can see the footnote there, to fill himself could be fill his soul. That's interesting. That's literally translated. And then also the last footnote there that I want to bring to your attention is uh, wealth. The wealth of his house. And then I want to ask you a question. Why, why do you think this appears right in the middle of all this adultery, sexual sin talk? 
Because this doesn't have to do with that. It's talking about stealing. I, my question I'd like to have for you is, is this an allegory? Of course it is. I mean, this is a good principle. Apply it. You should research this out. Why, why did God put this right in the middle of this? You will have to pay, and it will be painful if you step outside the boundaries of marriage. And it's very painful. We'll talk a little bit more about that in just a moment. We'll wrap up chapter 6. The one who commits adultery with a woman is lacking a heart of wisdom. He who would destroy his soul does it. Wounds and disgrace he will find, and his reproach will not be blotted out. For jealousy enrages a man, and he will not spare in the day of vengeance. He will not accept any ransom. He will not be willing, though you give him many bribes. Sexual sin causes problems not only for the people involved, but it has collateral damage. It doesn't just harm the people that are in the middle of the sexual sin. It has collateral damage, and it always does. You might think it's just between the two of you. No, it's not. Stephanie and I visited a church. <clears throat> it was in northern Indiana. It was, a, it, was, it was interesting because it was something, I don't remember the name of the church, but it was something Baptist church. But we heard that they were exploding. Now, we were in a town of a 1,000, and that was counting dogs and cats, I think. But it was a small town, and the Sunday that I resigned, the church attendance was 769. So we were the happening church in town. But in northern Indiana, there was a happening church there that was exploding similarly. So we wanted to go see what that was like. And we took some of our church member friends with us, and we went on a Sunday night to see, what's this, what's, what are they doing right and it was a wonderful service, had great music, and the building was nice. One of the things that was amusing to me was it was a Baptist church that had removed the name Baptist from everywhere. It wasn't on the signs anymore outside. It wasn't in the programs anymore. And the description of their church didn't say anything about Baptist. You had to get online to learn it was a Southern Baptist church. <clears throat> because, and that's still, still today, that's still a very, very um, appealing thing to attend a church that is not connected to a denomination because denominations divide. And so they were, um, they were moving in that direction. I don't know if they ever fully separated from the Southern Baptist denomination, but they were definitely separating at this time. And everything was great. The preaching was good. The fellowship was good. It was, they did everything. It seemed like they were trying to do everything biblical. And then they... they put the exclamation point at the end when a very calm man in a suit came to the stage and said, at this time, we would like to dismiss our guests. We've got greeters at the door at a big lobby. You can go out and be greeted as you leave. And he said, but if you would like to stay, we're going to handle some church business. You're welcome to stay. So several guests got up and left. We talked about it. We were sitting on the front row. And we talked about it and said, no, let's see what's, how they handle church business. So we, you know, we're trying to check them out, see how they're, what they're doing that's so right. 
And they had a couple of other church leaders join them on the stage, and they said, we have a couple of church families with the similar situations. They're not connected in their situations, but they're similar situations. They said uh, these church families, they committed to membership of this church. That, that meant that they committed to the way we handle discipline in the church. And they, they said that uh, this particular situation, and even though they were similar, they're not connected, they said that in each situation, uh, a spouse has been having an affair on their spouse. And they said, we've, we've, we've done the Matthew 18 passage where we, we encourage the, the spouse to confront the, the husband or wife and one-on-one, just between the two of you. That's what it says. If, if someone sins against you, you confront them just between the two of you. And then if that doesn't work, then you take two or more with you. We did that. And um, he said, we went beyond that. We had several meetings trying to get people to repent of their behaviors, and they wouldn't. In both cases, they refused to repent. And he said, so the next step is we are to now expose them to the church. Their names are, and they said their names. Do you know what that felt like to us on the front row at a different church? It felt wonderful. It felt like, wow. You're a part of a church that's going to hold people accountable. You're a part of the church that's going to actually follow what the Bible teaches. No wonder people were flocking to this church because their marriages would be more stable. When you're in a church like that that's going to hold you accountable, you betcha. <laughs> I wonder how many people, there's probably a couple thousand people there that night, I wonder how many people repented just by being a witness of what was happening. It's powerful stuff to follow this book. It's good. It's so good. But when couples do these kinds of things, when there's affairs going on, it affects not just you two, And if there's kids, it always affects the kids. It affects your friends. I remember having to deal with this. I get a phone call. I'm I'm trying to leave. I'm in my car. I get a call, and my phone hasn't connected to Bluetooth yet, so I answer it before. Now I'm stuck because I'm holding my phone, so I'm listening to this person. I suppose she called you. No, she didn't call me. I thought you were close. Yeah, we're close. She didn't call me. What's going on? Um... Well, she doesn't want to be married anymore. What? If I could have picked one couple that I would have thought would never get divorced at this particular time in my life, it would have been them. Countless hours in their home, Christmas time, birthdays, just hanging out with friends, solid Christian people, both of them, raising their kids in the church is wonderful. Collateral damage doesn't just hurt you and the kids. It hurts everybody that knows you. So I said I'd get back to the the painful thing, and I'm going to read to you a passage in just a minute out of the New Testament. It's very, very relevant. But I I want to make it painfully clear that sexual sin 
Sexual sin is something we, we tend to, in modern times, we tend to justify. We tend to defend it. We shouldn't. Sexual sin is, is a, it's a ticking time bomb. <clears throat> so I mentioned earlier women. I talked to women. I addressed you. And I, I want to address men and women, especially younger people who hear this kind of thing. It's very, this is, I'm going to give you a piece of gold right now. It's trendy now to um, cohabitate before you get married. You'll rarely ever find a couple that doesn't live together first. And, and, it's, <laughs> and if you say it this way, it sounds horrible. It sounds, I mean, it so, doesn't this sound bad? Well, I'm going to try her out first. Well, I'm going to try him out first. You're, you're wiser. People that think this way, you're wiser than God? Really? You do know it still works out. Check the statistics yourself. Those who cohabitate are more likely to divorce than those who don't before they're married. Because those who don't have greater moral standards. They're trying to, those who don't do it first usually are trying to follow what God's teaching them. Don't do that. But people do it anyway, and it's so common that it's, it's almost like as a preacher stands on a stage and preaches this, it's almost like, get with the times, preacher. Don't you know nobody does that anymore? That's where we are today. So you're, young people that hear this, you're going to have people who have their Christian people, their marriages are working, they've been married for many years, and they'll tell you, well, we did it. We lived together first, and it's just fine. And that's not okay. It's not okay for you to act like your words are wiser than God's words. It's not okay. And here's, here's a painful truth you may not have ever heard, but you need to hear it now. If you decide to cohabitate, which means more than likely... You're sexually active. You decide to do that before you're married. What you are saying to each other is, we don't have boundaries with our sexual lives. We don't follow God's boundaries. And if you go into a marriage relationship and both of you saying to each other, nope, we're not going to follow God's sexual boundaries. What do you think is going to happen when you're arguing at home and then there's all of a sudden attractive people now being nice to you somewhere else? The temptation will be there. And when there's no boundaries, even if you're faithful, you not think your spouse is going to be asking, who are you texting? Because you established the way you started your relationship is we don't follow God's sexual boundaries. Shame on us when we do that. Christians, are we not supposed to be different than the world? And does he not give us clear directions? Here. Okay. Just thought I'd ask. Now I want to take it to the level God wants us to think about. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18 and following. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral man sins against his own body. 
Or do you not know that your body is a sanctuary of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Why did I read this? The reason why is because you need to understand something clearly, Christians. When you decide to make Jesus Lord of your life, and you're baptized into Him, you're promised, Acts 2.38, the gift of the indwelling Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit in you. It's a wonderful thing. The power of God, the glory of God that used to be behind the curtain in the temple is now in you. It's a wonderful thing. And if you commit sexual sin, you are dragging the Holy Spirit through that. How do you think God feels about that? While you're dragging Him through your sexual deviance. It's not okay. It's not just the verses we read in Proverbs chapter 5 and chapter 6. It's not just the verses we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Throughout the Old and New Testament, God tries so very hard to keep us from harming ourselves with this kind of sin. And He isolates it. It's the only kind of sin that's done in the body. It's particularly particularly the thing that we're dragging Him through that He doesn't want to be dragged through. I know this is an uncomfortable subject. I know it feels heavy. Some of us, it's very personal. But I must give you this as I wrap up my part this morning. This is extra. Sexual sin is not justifiable, but is forgivable. You may be listening to this and you may think, man, I have really messed up. I've, I've committed horrible sins that were not pleasing to the Lord. I didn't think it, but that it was this big a deal. It is a big deal. But it's forgivable. And forgiveness of it requires four things here. Biblical, you can look them up if you need to ask me questions after. I'll be glad to help you or ask uh, someone you trust. First of all, acknowledgement. It's just like an alcoholic. He's not going to get better until he acknowledges that he has a problem. You have to acknowledge the sexual sin is wrong if you're going to get past it. The second thing is repentance. That means change your mind. You have to change the way you think about it. Just because it's wrong, you acknowledge that it's wrong, that's one thing, great. But you have to also change the way you think about it or you're going to repeat the behavior. So change the way you think about it. The next step is seeking forgiveness. Ask for it. Not just God. You should ask God to forgive you. Christians, if you've committed sexual sin with another person, you should seek forgiveness from them. If you have committed sexual sin and that has harmed a relationship that is you're supposed to be faithful in, your wife or your husband, you should seek forgiveness from them. Maybe it's in the past. Maybe it's something that is long in the past, but you never ask forgiveness. You should try to right your wrongs and seek forgiveness if that's possible. And six, modified behaviors. <laughs> if you want to keep forgiveness, you can't keep repeating the sin. You can't 
I don't know if you understand how repentance works, but let me explain it to you. That's why I have it up on the screen behind me. The word metanoeo means change your mind. That's why I have the definition there. You understand that you cannot repent of something if you plan on repenting later. In other words, if you think, okay, so I'll just, I'll go ahead and I'll just, I'll just do it, and then I'll ask for forgiveness later. It, it doesn't work that way. Here's how it doesn't, it can't work that way. Because repenting means changing your mind. So if you're planning to ask forgiveness later, you're not changing your mind. You planned on asking forgiveness after you were committing the sin in the first place. There's no mind changing going on. You should read your Old Testament and learn about forgiveness of sins and the mind of God. Did you happen to notice there was no provision for forgiveness of sins done on purpose in the Old Testament times? No, only sins done accidentally. But when you think about it and plan it out and do it, there was no provision for forgiveness. We're still dealing with the same God. He deals with us in a different way now, but understand the mind of God. He sees things in a way that we need to see things. Sins that are done on purpose are definitely, are definitely looked at differently. I know some of you think, well, no, no, all sin is sin. Okay, show me that verse. Where's that verse? I know preachers say it. I know you see it in books. And if you need help, ask any man who's got a men's notebook. There's about 200 references in the Bible, Old and New Testament, that says otherwise. All sin is not equal, all equal. Is there a sin that's unforgivable? Yep. Well, there you go. Did Jesus not say that man's guilty of a greater sin? Yep. There's a whole bunch of those. I'm telling you, God looks at sin differently if you do it on purpose rather than accidentally. That's not something I've made up. It's in your Bibles. So you have to actually stop the behavior. You can't just keep doing it. I'm going to pray right now. God, thank you for getting us through a difficult part of your Bible. God, forgive us when we disappoint you with our behaviors, the way we think, the way we act. Help us to get past all the pain that comes with this type of sin. God, I lift up to you the young people who, who hear this message. I ask that you would rally people around them so we can begin to change things in this crazy world and have more and more people follow you, especially these young people today that are being given so many confusing messages. Thank you for your wisdom that stands in contrast to the fake intelligence that's put before us. Thank you for giving us sage advice, practical advice. Even when it's uncomfortable, Lord, we do thank you for it. Help us as a church to do our part in representing you well so that we can have an impact on our community and world. God, we love you, and we want it to be obvious by the way we live our lives. So help us. In Jesus' name, amen.